Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode number two. Hello and welcome to this episode of the It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920. Although as you will see with today's episode, we sometimes stretch into the 1930s. In this episode, I'll be talking about the biggest box office attraction in the 1930s. And probably of all time. When this gentleman took a working vacation back to his home country of Greece, he was filling up 100,000 seat stadiums. And in 1934, he drew a 35,000 fan crowd, which was the largest crowd since the second Gotch Hackenschmidt match in 1911. But since we're talking about Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, I hit most of the key points last week, but I think I missed why I don't think that Frank Gotch paid Ad Santel the $5,000 to purposely injure George Hackenschmidt. So as I said last week, when I started researching Gotch versus Hackenschmidt, I believed the story that had been told about Ad Santel taking the $5,000 from Frank Gotch to purposely injure Hackenschmidt before the second match. However, as I researched that first match, I started to doubt that story. While Gotch fouled Hackenschmidt for that full two hours and didn't really wrestle fairly, Hackenschmidt never really troubled him. It was not like Hackenschmidt ever put Gotch on the defensive, or Gotch was close to being thrown or losing a fall. He pretty much stalemated Hackenschmidt's offense and just butted him and gouged him and palm struck him. So the first thing I thought after researching that first match is why would Gotch pay such an astronomical sum, it was almost half of his purse for that second bout, to injure someone that he really didn't have any trouble with during the first match. And then when I started looking at the second match, I was even more convinced that this was just more of a story that has made the rounds through the years. As I always say, pro wrestling is a very interesting mix of fact and fiction. Gotch received $13,000 as the winner's purse for that second Gotch-Hackenschmidt match. So if he'd have given Santel $5,000 of that, he would have been giving him basically half of not half, but close to half of what he would have received for the entire bout. So I just, I didn't see that as being realistic. Secondly, the story had always been from both Hackenschmidt and Roller that the injury, and remember, Hackenschmidt had a pre-existing injury coming into this match, and Gotch already knew that Hackenschmidt wasn't in full strength because he had watched the match between Hackenschmidt and Zabisco to try to determine who would be the next person to wrestle Gotch, even though it was going to be Hackenschmidt all the time. He knew Hackenschmidt wasn't at 
for him to give such an astronomical sum of money to Santel to injure somebody he already knew really wasn't in his class and was already dealing with injury doesn't make any sense. One thing I think may this story may have arisen out of is they've always said that Gotch had a spy in Hackenschmidt's camp and knew about Hackenschmidt's knee injury before the sec before that second match. And four or five days before that match and before Hackenschmidt was even talking about canceling, Gotch was already alluding to the papers, you know, I think that there may be some injury he's dealing with. He may have some kind of injury. And many people pointed the finger at Dr. Benjamin Roller because Roller had worked out with him before and they thought, well, that might be the, the person who was the spy. If Santel is willing to tell people that he purposely injured his mentor for $5,000, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that he or Roller would take a couple hundred dollars from Gotch to act as their spy within the camp. So those are my two top suspects would be Santel or Dr. Roller. Everybody talked, Roller was a little bit of an odd guy, but he was also an honorable guy. So if he's leading the training camp, my suspicion falls more heavily on Santel than on Roller. But either one is a possibility. The one person I don't think it was was America's Gus Schoenlein, who was an American wrestler in the camp, because Gotch, in one of the few contests he wrestled in 1912, purposely injured Schoenlein's uh, foot, and the only thing he could have had angst with Schoenlein about was that match from the year previously, because they had wrestled matches before, and Gotch never tried to injure him. So I just wanted to clear up I had left that part out, why I don't believe that happened. I think that that's just a story. Speaking of stories and one that's not easy to tell, for some reason I decided after publishing Gotch versus Abisko in February that I was going to undertake for my next book project to record the history of the American heavyweight title. And this is by far the most frustrating project that I've ever taken on so far. And the reason for the frustration is the American Heavyweight Championship was the first major catch wrestling championship in the United States, because that's primarily what it was. There was a unification match in 1893, but I might save that for a future podcast, or you can just read about it in the uh, book, or I've also done a blog post about it at KinsermanJr.com. But it was primarily a catch wrestling championship, and but it doesn't have a linear history. So the first two gentlemen that held it barely defended it and didn't even consistently call it the American Heavyweight Championship. Realize this is before belts. So people would have these titles. Sometimes people would give them a gold cup, but that didn't exist for these. It was just you had the, the title. So uh, the first two champions were Englishmen, and they claimed the championship, but it wasn't even called the American Heavyweight Championship consistently until 1887 when Evan Strangler Lewis won it. Lewis really establishes the title, and then the, the lineage is fairly clear from Lewis until Gotch. Once Gotch won the world championship, he held both for a few years, and then he 
vacated the American Championship, and they had a number of worked matches amongst his uh, training partners at Farmer Burns Training Camp. And then Ed Strangler Lewis had a run with it. Uh, other people had a run with it. Then it becomes the World Championship again in 1915 when Joe Stecker wins it and people recognize him as the World Champion. And then it exists in some form or fashion from 1917 to 1922. In 1922, it goes defunct completely. So just in that little blurb I've given you, you could see how challenging it is going to be to get, write both the history of this and to explain it in a way that's clear for the readers. I'm still working on that myself. Once I have it clear in my own mind, I'm probably going to have to create a timeline to put with the book uh, to help. Tim Hornbaker has something similar to that in a couple other sites, but there's there's a lot of conjecture about certain things because it's not linear. If it was linear, there'd be no conjecture. We would just say when this person, if you look at the Missouri Heavyweight Championship that the old St. Louis promotion had, there's no conjecture about anything. You clearly know when people won and lost, and because Sam didn't do the phantom belt switches, it's a very linear, very clear title history. The American Heavyweight Championship is not so blessed. However, it is important because it is the first wrestling championship in America that was created in America, and it was the first professional championship that was defended regularly in the primitive era into the early modern era of the sport. So if I don't lose my mind researching this, sometime in later in the year, uh, that book will be coming out. And then from there, I think I'm going to stick with uh, single wrestler books for the next few book projects. This one has been a real stretch for a number of reasons. And then I wanted to jump into this week's show. And this week's show is actually based on a question. I received a question a few uh, months ago. Someone was researching Jim Londis. And they asked when he started working matches and how he learned to work. And I'll answer that question in just a second. But before I answer the question, I thought it would be an ideal time to talk about several terms which will often come up in the podcast. If you go to my website, kensurbanjr.com, and read some of the blog posts on there, you will see these terms as well. Uh, work, shoot, performer, shooter, hooker, and hook. And these are insider terms, but they're historical insider terms as well. So I do use these in my writing. And work is just a prearranged exhibition. So that means the wrestlers are working together to put on a good match. The outcome has been predetermined. And they're working to make the, uh, put on an enjoyable match for the fans. And, but they don't want people to know they're working. Letting people know you're working is a modern, well, postmodern, really. It's something that came about in the 90s and 2000s. A shoot is a legitimate contest. So the two wrestlers are in there, and they're wrestling to win, and the outcome is not uh, predetermined. Think of an MMA match or a submission grappling match today. 
same thing. It's a legitimate contest. There are no shoots today. The things people talk about as shoots really aren't shoots because the outcome of that match is not going to change. It's just two wrestlers have quit working together. So you'll hear people use the term a lot today, work or shoot. In an interview, it still has validity. But people aren't shooting in a wrestling match. They're not cooperating. They're having a fight. You know, um, if they were wanting to test their skills, I guess they could have a little bit of a friendly shoot, but it isn't going to change the outcome of the match. So it's not a legitimate contest. It's not a shoot in the historical way the word used to be used. Performer. So there's, in the old days, this really doesn't apply much anymore. You do have shooters and hookers still in the business, but the majority of people are performers. A performer is someone who knows how to perform a wrestling match, but does not have actual wrestling skill. You could make that uh, statement about most of the wrestlers today. Most of them don't have a... Well, I shouldn't say that because there, there are quite a few that do. Traditionally, pro wrestlers learned, uh, we call it amateur wrestling here, but back then it would have been, they could have learned from a carnival, they could have learned from local competitions. Later on, they you would have the collegiate competitions that they would get their legitimate wrestling skills from. But a shooter isn't a hooker. A shooter is a very skilled wrestler. A hooker is a very skilled submission wrestler. Stanislaus Abisko was a shooter. Jack Briscoe was a shooter. They were both great wrestlers. Jack Briscoe was an NCAA champion. Stanislaus Abisko was a European Greco-Roman champion who came over here and learned catch wrestling, but his submission skills were never on the level of many of the other wrestlers. But he could beat a lot of them in a straight wrestling match because they couldn't get the submission on him, and he could pin them. But that's the difference between a shooter and a hooker. A shooter is a very good wrestler, a hooker is someone who's skilled with submissions, which are hooks. Hooks are submission holds. And if they get one of those submissions on you, they can you know, break your arm, dislocate something. They can put you to sleep if they do a carotid artery choke. A performer normally is not skilled in that way, but today's topic is actually someone who was a shooter and knew a few hooks, but was never on the level of the other shooters of the day. He was looked upon as more of a performer, although the pure performers, he could he could defeat. So let me give you an example of pure performers from this era. Big Wayne Munn is one of the most obvious picks. He was a college football star at the University of Nebraska. He stood six foot five and weighed two hundred and sixty pounds, which was huge in the 1920s and Billy Sandow saw him and saw big money which he was right he did draw big money for a while until somebody shot on him but he recruited him from the college football ranks he had never wrestled he didn't know how to legitimately wrestle but the wrestlers taught him enough how to perform a match that he could go out and perform a worked match capably enough that people couldn't see through it and he was a big box office star, particularly in Kansas City area where he frequently drew 10,000 fans to the convention center. 
another famous performer was Gus Sonenberg. He had a similar background. He was a professional football player. He had not been a college football, or I'm sorry, he had not been a college wrestler. He was a college football or a college and pro football player. Big star. They saw a lot of money. And again, they taught him how to work, put the world championship on him. But then you've got to always be wary of the shooters and the hookers that they don't come in and double cross the person like happened to Big Wayne Munn and take the championship legitimately. So that brings us to Jim Londis. And the question was asked, when did he start working matches and how did he learn to work? Well, Londis began working matches almost from the very beginning. He did do a little bit of legitimate wrestling. He was born Christos Theophilou in Greece on January 2nd, 1894, and he started out as a circus straw man, strongman. So in the show notes this week, I'm going to put a couple of pictures I've got of Londis from St. Louis in the 1920s, because that's really where he gets his first break and becomes a big star. But he had a fantastic physique, and he started out as a circus strongman. Well, the carnival wrestlers actually taught him how to shoot and hook a little bit when he was working for the carnivals. And then in the mid-teens, he starts wrestling professionally, but he really doesn't hit it big until the 1920s, and the, the city he hit it big in first was St. Louis. Nick Contos was the first promoter in St. Louis. He started the promotion in 1922, and his nephew, Tom Pax, took over for him in 1924 because Contos was working with a wrestler named Dan Kolov, who was from Bulgaria, and Contos ended up turning the St. Louis office over to Pax so that he could become Kolov's manager, and then later he became the promoter, the first promoter for Atlanta, Georgia. As you'll see in the pictures in the show notes, Londos was a good-looking guy and he had a great physique. And Tom Pax and Nick Contos, having an affinity for their fellow countrymen, they were all from uh, Greece originally, starts promoting him as one of their top stars in the town. And I said he was not a shooter on the level of a Ed Strangler Lewis, who he avoided like the plague, Stanislaus Zabisco, Joe Stecker, or John Tigerman Pesic, he still was dangerous enough in the 30s when Lou Thez was coming along. George Tragos did not want Thez wrestling with him because he said he sees star potential in you and he will try to hurt you before you know how to defend yourself against him. So he did have some shooting skills, but he was primarily a performer. He becomes a big star in St. Louis. They want to actually local businessmen want to give him the money to start his own gym. That's how popular he was in St. Louis. But in the late 20s, he attracts the attention of Joe Tootsmont, who had left the Goldust Trio and was now involved with the New York promotional office. Luthez always said it was because Mott could see a fellow con man because Londis had a very checkered reputation. And the reason he had the checkered reputation, this goes back to the working matches, he would convince local businessmen, local Greek businessmen, in the towns he was wrestling to bet heavily on him, and then he would bet heavily against himself and go out and lose the match and would clean these businessmen out. Well, they eventually figured out what was going on, 
and he had a very checkered rep- reputation. There were places in the Midwest that he couldn't wrestle anymore. Uh, he never pulled that in St. Louis. He knew where his bread was buttered. He wasn't going to mess up his home base. But there were several towns in the Midwest, uh, Ohio I think was one, where he could not wrestle anymore because he had pulled this so many times. Mott, who does talks about his checker reputation, latches on to Londis and makes him the world champion in New York. And this is really when he hits his stride and he becomes the biggest box office star in professional wrestling. Besides the stadiums he sold out in Greece when he went home, he and Ed Strangler Lewis... So, let me step back before I go into this actual match. Londos avoided Lewis like the plague, which was smart because Lewis couldn't stand him. He never called him by his name. He always called him a bunch of expletives. And if Lewis shot on him, Londos would have been helpless. And even Londis's policemen didn't really want to mess with Ed Lewis too much. So for years, Londis just absolutely refused to get in the ring with Lewis, even though Lewis was the biggest star and that would have drawn the biggest house. Eventually, Mont, who was still friendly with Lewis, convinces him to have a match with Londos in Chicago at Wrigley Field. But Mont and Lewis have to put up, some say 25000 some say 50000 It was a large monetary forfeit that if Lewis shot on Londis and, and beat him, he would have to forfeit all that money. So with that money deposited, Londis gets, goes ahead with the match. Lewis does put him over. And this match at Wrigley Field drew 35,275 fans for a $96,302 gate, and this is in 1934. That record would stand until 1952, but if you adjust for inflation, the 1934 match was still a bigger drawing match than the 1952 match between Luthez and Baron Michel Leone in Los Angeles. So he was a huge star, but he he was a worker from the very beginning. I don't know of any legitimate contest that Londis ever had. He had offered to wrestle Gus Sonnenberg, which isn't much of an offer when he's a pure performer and you at least can wrestle. But I don't know of any legitimate contest that Londis ever had. So all of his matches would have been worked matches. And he learned to work as soon as he became a professional. He learned to shoot from the carnival wrestlers. Before we close this week's episode, and this this is a little shorter one, I actually wanted to go over one of the bigger events in my wrestling fandom, and unbeknownst to my sister and I, when we attended this card on New Year's Day 1982, it would also be the death knell for St. Louis as the wrestling capital of the United States in just a few years. But the other day, I found the the Sam Muchnick retirement card from New Year's Eve, 1982. It was a Friday night. All the wrestling matches in St. Louis were held. Uh, all the wrestling cards in St. Louis were held on a Friday night when I was a kid, when the St. Louis Wrestling Club was in operation. The majority of those were held at Keel Auditorium, 
which was about a 9,000-seat auditorium. But the really huge cards, which only happen about once or twice a year, would go to the Checker Dome or the arena. It was the Checker Dome in the 80s, 70s and 80s, when uh, Ralston Purina owned the Blues. And then it became the arena again, which was its original name when it was built in the 60s. It's no longer standing this card drew 19,918 paying customers, which my sister and I were two of them. I was, it was right before my 13th birthday. And the wrestling that I had fallen in love with over the last three and a half, four years was going to be non-existent within the next few years. And part of that I'll go into as I read off this particular card. So... The curtain raiser match was a match between Jerry Brown and Bulldog Rob Brown, which ended in a draw when both men were co were counted out outside the ring at 14:01. Bulldog Bob Brown and Rufus R. Jones, who's up later on the card, were two of the bigger stars for the Central States area, but in St. Louis, they were mid card guys and they were the line. They were not main event guys until. Pat O'Connor and Bob Geigel took over St. Louis, and that's one of the things that helped ruin the city very quickly. But Bulldog Bob Brown and Rufus R. Jones were the line. If a wrestler beat, if, so if a bad guy wrestler, today we call them heels and baby faces because we're aware of the terminology, but back in those days they were called fan favorites or scientific wrestlers and rule breakers. And the reason I think fan favorite became more popular is some of the popular uh, baby faces were not scientific wrestlers. You know, they were brawlers like Dick the Bruiser. So then they started saying fan favorites and rule breakers are most hated wrestlers. Bulldog Bob Brown was the heel wrestler that if a fan favorite beat, they were either going to be a contender for the Missouri Heavyweight Championship or the World Heavyweight Championship. And the same thing for Rufus R. Jones. Rufus R. Jones was a big fan favorite in St. Louis. So if a wrestler, a uh, bad guy wrestler, a heel, a rule breaker beat Rufus R. Jones, you knew that they were moving up on the card and they were either going to challenge for the Missouri State title or the World Heavyweight Championship. So that was the first match. Bulldog Bob Brown, Jerry Brown, they were the curtain raiser. This mat, this card is going to be very weird because I'm going to come back and there was actually a match after the main event, which almost never happened in St. Louis. But that might have given all the guys a chance to go put their suits on. So they had an added attraction, which was Joyce Grable and Wendy Richter defending their women's tag team title. And they defeated Sandy Partlow and Early Dawn, two falls out of three. Uh, Gable... Grable pinned Partlow at 821, Partlow pinned Grable at 121, and Richter pinned Dawn at 418. The third match on the card was Pat O'Connor's retirement match, and in that match he defeated Bob Sweetan at 6 minutes 4 seconds. In the fourth match, Crusher Jerry Blackwell, who was a bad guy in St. Louis, defeated Ox Baker, who was a good guy, and Bruce Reed in a handicap tag match, Blackwell pinned Baker at 5 minutes 48 seconds. Bruce Reed would actually go on to become Hacksaw Butch Reed. He was 
not a rookie here, but he was only in his second or third year in the business. And he had got his start in central states because he had played football for Central Missouri State, which is something else now, but it's the college in Warrensburg. Then we start getting towards the top of the card. We get to the special attraction match, which is a tag team match between David Von Erich, who is huge in St. Louis, and Rufus R. Jones and the team of Harley Race and Greg Valentine. The match ended in a draw when Von Erich and Race were disqualified for knocking down referees Lee and Ed Warren at 10 minutes, 47 seconds. And David Von Erich and Harley Race had a tremendous series of matches all through the early 80s in St. Louis for the world title, and then after Harley lost that for the Missouri State uh, title. In the the semifinal match, Dick the Bruiser won the Missouri State title by defeating defending champion Ken Patera at 11 minutes, 48 seconds. That probably might be surprising to a number of people that are like, Dick the Bruiser winning the title, you know, he's in his 50s at this point in time. But Dick the Bruiser was really over in St. Louis, and people believed that Dick the Bruiser could beat up most men walking the face of the earth. Patera had been the champion through uh, the last few months. It had been Ted DiBiase through most of 81. And then the main event, Ric Flair defended his National Wrestling Alliance world title by defeating Dusty Rhodes two falls out of three. They don't have the time of those falls, but those falls would have all been clean clean pins or a DQ. And then Dewey Robertson in the final event. So like I said, this was very unusual because normally nothing went on after the main event in St. Louis. But a final event was Dewey Robertson pinned Baron Von Roschke at 327. Most people probably know Dewey Robertson as the missing link in world class in Mid-South. So that was the card for Pat... Uh, for Pat, for Sam Muchnick's final retirement card. And by the end of 83, the, the Wrestling of the Chase was a WWE show. And the cards at Keel continued to draw into 84. I think the last match my sister and I went to was in 85. But the only reason it did was they were still getting talent from world class. So we would go to see Chris Adams and Sunshine versus Jimmy Garvin and Precious. we go to see the Von Erichs wrestle. But the Central States wrestlers were not over in St. Louis at all. For 60 years, St. Louis had one of the larger wrestling promotions, whether it was Nick Contos, whether it was Tom Pax or whether it was Sam Muchnick, you had 60 years of a very good drawing town. It was every three-week-to-a-month territory, but it drew big houses consistently. And then a new group comes in, doesn't follow the principles that Sam Muchnick had put in place, and within two years it was pretty much defunct. And I can't say I fell out of love with wrestling when all of that happened in the 80s. I was still a fan in the 80s and into the 90s. Um, Bret Hart's run uh, in the mid-90s is one of my favorite times. I was not ever a big WWF fan, but I liked the Bret Hart stuff in the 90s and then Stone Cold. That, That whole era was pretty good until they started going too crazy with all of the 
goofy skits and the things that have led to what we see today. So I think that's it for this week's episode. KenzermanJr.com is the place to check out the show notes for today's episode. You can also see what I'm working on currently in a list of books I've written if you're interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. Thank you for listening today. I'd also be grateful if you'd rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible so people who have never heard of it can discover it. If you've already done that, thank you so much. And if you'd like to comment on this episode or ask a question, please go to KenzermanJr.com, find the contact page at the top navigation, and drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care everybody. Just kidding. Now, the next week's show is going to be about the meanest, most dangerous wrestler of the 19th century. This was a guy so fearless and so vicious that he refused to back down from six police officers in Buffalo, New York. Stay tuned to next week's episode. Until then, take care, everybody. Bye-bye.